Welcome back to the Geopolitics podcast. I'm joined once again by JM and Lydia. And today we're talking about Crimea, all things Crimea, past, present, and where we are going from here. Um, JM, how was your week? A normal one. Halfway through. And Lydia? Mine was good. I'm still a little bit jet lagged. So that might affect things a little bit, but I'll do my best. So we're basically going to talk about um, Crimea's history, and uh, we have Lydia here for the Russian perspective and JM for a little bit more of the historical perspective. Um, So JM, why don't you, we start talking briefly about just getting us from the ancient history of of the Crimea to now, because um, I'm very, um, myself, I don't obviously don't know about Lydia, um, but myself, I don't know very much about the peninsula until it was incorporated into the Soviet Union. And I think that that was 1921. So um, um, prior to that, it was the Crimean Khanate, right? Oh, yes. Um, This is, of course, after the fall of Kievan Rus and after the rise of Muscovy as a Tsardom. That, yes, the Crimean Khanate was one of the golden hordes holdouts but not really because they were only by then very 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 tangentially connected to the mongols and the crimean khanate after ivan the terrible reduced the tatar khanate by conquering kazan it came under the protection of the ottoman empire and the Crimean Peninsula was something that, of course, Peter the Great had wanted to get in the Great Northern War, but he hadn't been quite strong enough to get it. But Catherine the Great did get it during the Russo-Turkish War of 1768 to 1774. And because, of course, of its very southerly position in the Black Sea, and because at the time Turkey was a major military threat and geopolitical competitor to the Russian Empire, the Crimean Peninsula very, very quickly, and especially the city of Sevastopol, became important to the Russian Navy. It also became, even in imperial times, very much a holiday destination. The Russian Riviera, the southernmost point of the Russian Empire that was proper, that was fully unquestionably in Europe and with the sea. So it also therefore has the emotional connection, especially once this became a lot more mass, as it were, under the Soviet Union with people being able to take holidays and many taking their holidays in Crimea with being associated with a good time at the beach, with family, with youth, maybe finding love. So that's a big part of it. Because we don't have a lot of seas in Russia. I mean, we do, but not exactly that particular kind. Like, for example, in Siberia, we literally had to dig out our own sea. Ukrainians <laughs> brag about it, but we actually had to do it. Fun fact. <laughs> so, weird flex, but here it is. So it was the Siberians that actually dug the sea. Weird how that well, happened. <laughs> we, we dug our own sea, yes, because, you know, Crimea is a little bit far from for us but it is you know it is a definitely a very special place even in that respect so we know that crimea is 
obvious what is passed along when the Ottoman Empire is defeated and credited with that is Catherine the Great. So um, what now in even in the West, which surprisingly, I've never really been taught anything bad about Catherine the Great. She's I wouldn't say she's lauded, but she's definitely acknowledged as a very powerful female leader. And I'm wondering, um, she's definitely held in some sort of admiration in the West, um, maybe not a focal point, but there's a sort of seething hatred now from the Ukrainians in regards to Catherine the Great, especially in the regions of Odessa and the Crimea. And is why is kind of the, is what I'm kind of trying to ask because in, in, in the, in the context of the history, in the context of the, what was taking place at that time, it's kind of a natural thing for Catherine the Great and Russia to have taken over that that vicinity, if that makes sense. Well, I think that the reason she obviously gets hate is because Catherine brought these part these regions, so Kherson, Crimea. Nikolaev and Odessa into the Russian Empire before they'd been part of the Turkish Ottoman Empire, and she brought them into the Russian Empire. This, of course, makes it very problematic for modern Ukrainians because a Ukrainian state and Ukrainian people as such had nothing much to do with this. Um what made these lands instead of being turkish ukrainian as i suppose you could call it if we're going to be a bit anachronistic here is the fact that they were brought into the territories of russian ukraine by russian military arms and by a russian empress and indeed she founded the cities of kherson and odessa she actually founded odessa just a few years before she died so this uh, fact is there but it also is very troublesome for the ukrainian national narrative as it means having to acknowledge that their country such as it is was for a very long time not a subject in international relations so much as an object as implied by its name the borderland a large expansive territory fought over and sought after by others but the actual territory itself is only important insofar as it can be added or subtracted from the territory of those others not really so much in itself in that sense so then we're we move forward now we're in the russian civil war which is definitely a uh a, a conflict i am not very well versed in but i will say that the whites as in the, the white army for, for listening i'm talking about white people the white people the whites actually held the peninsula and the reds were able the red army was able to take it only i mean it did change hands many 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 times but um it was only allowed that it was they were only able to take it when they threw like an exorbitant amount of bodies at it. I believe that the losses were five to one between the from uh, the Red Army with uh, five losses to every one loss of the White Army. Um, and that was in 1920. And uh, 
they were able to take it, but only because of the amount of of troops they sent through that uh, it's Smiths. It's Smiths. That's gonna be like my favorite word of the. <laughs> can you guys say that? It's Smiths. It, it's Smiths. Can we can we pick a different word? That narrow passageway. That bottleneck. It's Smiths. <laughs> bad word it's a it's a um <laughs> bottleneck basically so the red army was forced to bottleneck themselves through this if smiths and um they didn't have any other routes to take um so but they were eventually able to take crimea and crimea became the autonomous soviet socialist republic as part of the russian soviet union which um which was 1921 so I really don't know what happened, if anything, in that interim period between 1921 and maybe 1942. So for 20 years, I'm guessing that Crimea lived in relative quiet, I'm guessing, during this USSR. Anybody? <laughs> well, until World War II, certainly. Right. Like all of the territory, though, of um, that area, it was badly hit by the famines of uh the early 1920s and also the 1930s albeit crimea wasn't one of the particular hotspots but that's on the basis of memory from some articles that i've read i'm afraid i don't have perfect memory of the history of the holodomor in crimea i would say that in terms of i think it it, it is part of the importance of Crimea in terms of emotional memory that that was the last um, holdout of the White Army. But by the time fighting really got there, it was very clear that the Whites were lost because they actually effectively lost the Civil War over a um, eight-month period from basically the end of July 1919 to the winter of 1920. So when Tukhachevsky was able to turn his attention to Crimea and to defeat Baron Wrangel, it was pretty clear which way it was going to go. And actually, given the resources at his disposal, I think um, Tukhachevsky did a pretty good job of breaching Wrangel's defenses because it was pretty much over for Wrangel by that point. Uh, there was simply no way that they were going to win. However, Crimea did become very important um, in World War II because it was as the Germans steamrollered east, and particularly after the disaster at Kiev in September 1941, Crimea, because again of the narrow isthmus with access to the peninsula, was in 1941 with the, which was a the last part of uh, was just a little island of Soviet power that was left in territories of the Soviet Union that were otherwise overrun. And it was also important to hold on to it because otherwise the Axis navies would have a lot more free reign in the Black Sea. So it was decided to try and hold on to it. Hitler also didn't think very much of that idea of the Soviets being able to hold on to Crimea. Well, he didn't think that they should be able to hold on to anything. So he sent Manstein down there, who is a uh, nice little folk hero in the West because he 
wrote some biographies, including one called Lost Victories. And ever since then, Weraboos have gone over (laughs) the perspective of their precious Wehrmacht, you know, so close and yet so far from destroying the hated commies. Manstein, you're such a great chap, even though you participated in mass murder and ethnic cleansing when you were in charge of your forces in Ukraine, including... That's minor. (laughs) Just a little, just a little detail there. Yeah. And also, unlike, say, Rundstedt, who was his overall commander in 1941, Manstein does not appear to have been very bothered by any of that, or it doesn't appear to have weighed on his conscience at all. So, uh, Manstein, a general with a deservedly good reputation as an operational tactical general, and from several accounts quite decent to work for, but still, you know, (laughs) a World War II German general, if you catch my drift. But because um, the Germans had not been stopped before and seemed to be able to break through everywhere, the fact that Crimea was able to resist for so long was a good bit of news when the Soviet Union desperately needed some very good news. And of course, uh, one of the Soviet war heroes, Lyudmila Pavlichenko, the woman sniper who famously killed um, anywhere between 200 to 300 Germans, very famously got all of her kills at the siege of Sevastopol, once again trying to hold on to that naval base and hold on pretty desperately, despite the fact that the Germans were often able to disrupt supplies to the peninsula and had effective air superiority over the entire peninsula and relentlessly ground forward. Um, ultimately, though, Sevastopol was lost due um, both to, to the fact that it wasn't possible to hold it and an even worse catastrophe happened in Crimea in 1942 because one of Stalin's cronies, a gentleman by the name of Lev Michlis, tried to cram a bunch of soldiers into the Kerch Peninsula on the Crimean Peninsula and hold the Germans, but he concentrated them so densely that basically these soldiers were unable to effectively operate, as in all the units were unable to effectively operate. And Manstein was able to use that disorganization against them so that even though there were lots of Soviet soldiers there, um, because they were so badly organized, there wasn't very much that they could do, and he was able to punch through and inflict horrendous casualties and yet another multi-hundred thousand defeat on the Red Army, which was not something, uh, after the disaster at Kharkov, was not something that the Red Army needed in 1942, especially as the Germans were pushing on the Caucasus. The occupation of Crimea was also extremely brutal. The peninsula was effectively denuded of many of its people, um, except for the Crimean Tatars who were more amenable than most of the Ukrainians and Russians were to the presence of the Germans. But I say more amenable, not amenable, because Crimean Tatars were mostly also victims of the German occupation, but because they got to stay when the Soviet army returned in 1944, also inflicting a kind of perfect revenge 
on the Germans because the Germans in 1944 in Crimea got caught in the same situation the Red Army had been put in in the summer of 1942 in Crimea and were also similarly destroyed in an utterly one-sided battle. Stalin being Stalin, and therefore, as we know, not somebody who ever engaged in paranoid thinking or who would ever engage in the kind of thinking of the ends justify the means and that it is better to let 10 guilty escape rather than convict one innocent man, promptly deported the Crimean Tatar people to Kazakhstan. This, suffice it to say, created... um a lot of ill feeling and controversy. However, people who had successfully fled Crimea or who just needed a home were settled in Crimea, mostly by that point, Russians and Ukrainians. Mostly Russians, though. There's a problem, though. Much of Crimea would be a desert and certainly not suitable for agriculture given its natural climate. So it needs to be it needs it, its agriculture in order to work needs to be fed by a canal from the river Dnieper to make sure that many of its lands can be watered and things can grow there. So, however, by 1954, there were a few things here. Stalin was dead, and Khrushchev had taken his place at general, as general secretary of the Communist Party. He wasn't yet supreme leader, as it were, of the Soviet Union. He still had another year to go, and he was vying for competition with Malenkov, and he was hoping to imitate Stalin in the sense of using the party to come to power, and so therefore he needed support within the party. But how could he do this? Well, one of the ways that he could do this was by gifting something to Ukraine, where because Khrushchev had for a very long time been uh, the first secretary of the Ukrainian communist of the Ukrainian branch of the Communist Party. He could remind them uh, that their old boss was looking out for them and that they, in turn, in the Central Committee and the party congresses should vote for him and back him. But it isn't to say that he just gave Crimea just because he wanted to win some favors with the Ukrainian party leadership or party apparatus. There was a practical matter to consider. Crimea was still in the Russian Republic. Ukraine was still, well, the Ukrainian Republic. And the Ukrainian Republic controlled access to the Dnieper. Anybody who knows anything about the Soviet system and planning knows that one of the things that was baked into the system very early on is that different units with or authorities within that planning system would hold on to their resources for dear life because they would never know when directives would change from on down or there could be unforeseen circumstances such that they would need those resources. So they tended to hold on to them until they were ordered to release them. This helped create some of the production problems, uh, shortages and bottlenecks, which the party was able to smooth over but never quite solved. However, this obviously isn't very good for growing crops, especially in a place, Crimea, where Ukraine controls the resources and is always expected to release the right amount of those resources to another part of the Soviet Union. Um, this just creates extra work. 
So one way of solving this problem and making sure that Crimea always gets enough water for drinking, for agriculture, for what have you, is to transfer Crimea to the Ukrainian Republic. So for Khrushchev, this solved a few problems all at once. And as for the question of, well, because it was brought up in the Politburo that the transfer didn't make sense because most of the people in Crimea were not only Russian speakers, most people in Ukraine were and are Russian speakers, but also most of them were ethnic Russians. So it made no sense from that point of view. But Khrushchev was able to push it through on the basis of these economic arguments. And also, very helpfully, it was a nice gift to the Ukrainian party apparatus that enhanced their territory, population, and authority. And accordingly, Khrushchev made sure that he had secured votes and had cleared his way to becoming paramount leader of the Soviet Union, and later to do good things like initiate de-Stalinization and prioritize the production of consumer goods, thus helping make a better Soviet life. But this became a problem 30 years later when the Soviet Union fell apart, because suddenly yes. what, what had just been, well, uh, it's just, you know, an administrative difference, suddenly became a big, big problem, because people in Crimea did not as in really powerfully, did not want to be part of an independent Ukraine. Um, this was also not helped by the fact that it was around at this time that the Crimean Tatars really began to uh, return en masse. They had started to come back um, in the early Brezhnev era, but really, really came back in earnest from Kazakhstan, like almost all of them, from 1989 to 1991. And they wanted to have everything that had been taken from them restored, and this in the context of a collapsing system and society. So people there felt embattled and threatened, and it wasn't a very good situation, not helped by the fact that Ukrainian ultranationalists were determined to Ukrainianize Crimea, but they lacked the state capacity at the time to really carry that through. And Yeltsin, although he was prepared to give away everything and indeed made some mumbling you know, statements, as Yeltsin tended to do, about support for Crimea, and certainly Yuri Lushkov, the longtime mayor of Moscow, took the issue under his wing, um, it wasn't something that Yeltsin wanted to ruin relations with Ukraine over. But Yeltsin, although he tended to give away everything, was not going to give away the naval base at Sevastopol. So they patched together a compromise, that is to say, Yeltsin and Kravchuk. The deal was Crimea would be part of Ukraine, but it was supposed to be an autonomous part of Ukraine, whereas U the Ukrainians place a huge emphasis on everything must be super-duper centralized. Uh, there can be no autonomy at all for anybody in any way whatsoever. We're all one very particular Ukrainian state here. But Crimea would get constitutional arrangements that would allow it to be autonomous. And one of the ways in which it would be autonomous would be Russian language rights. And Russia would, uh, every 25 years, get to have its lease on the Sevastopol naval base renewed so that a NATO navy would never be able to use the Sevastopol naval base against Russia and thus pin Russia in the Black Sea into a very small corner and therefore by lose quite a bit of its sovereignty and importance. 
Um, there were a there was one big problem with this arrangement. The Ukrainians never ever fulfilled it. Kravchuk broke his promises. Then when Kuchma was elected, he said in 1995, when there was another flare-up of anti-Ukrainian sentiment in local elections, that he would guarantee autonomy uh, for Crimea in the 1996 constitution. Uh, Kuchma betrayed that promise. He granted Crimea autonomy by law, but he didn't give them any language protections. So this meant that they had no Russian language protections, that they had autonomous status, but it could, but it was only in law, not by the constitution, so it could be easily taken away at any time. And the 1996 constitution says that Ukraine is a unitary state. It also says in Article 16 that the duty of the Ukrainian state is to preserve the genetic fund of the Ukrainian nation. So it also says that. Whatever that means? It means exactly as it reads. Okay. Yes, it's a, it's a very, the Ukrainian constitution is very, very weird. Well, sounds like it. I actually think that, well, it just made me think about this very strange theory that I hear a lot on the, let's call it Western internet, about how Russia basically, since uh, the so-called Crimean occupation, the Russia basically imported a bunch of Russians uh, to drive out the Ukrainians. So I don't know, I guess, do something to the pure genetic Ukrainian pool, which I, I find very funny. Where are we in the timeline right now? We're in 1996. So we skipped all the referendums. <laughs> well, oh, the, well, the, let's talk about the referendums then. All right. Before we get into like the mid to late 90s, I really want to stretch stress this because um, I think JM did a really nice job of saying like establishing why Crimea might be seen as a separate entity um, or had some sort of sovereignty. And if we look, if we look throughout the history of Crimea and its relation to its two parents, I guess Ukraine and Russia, um, we can see that ever since they were able to, Crimeans have been making an effort to achieve some sort of sovereignty underneath the newly established Russian Federation, and that started in 1991. So, um, the first. Crimean sovereignty referendum was in 1991, as soon, almost immediately after Ukraine established um, or talked about establishing its independence from the USSR. Uh, so on 20 January, I think it was 20 January 1991, um, they asked in the Crimean, uh, it was still known as the Crimean Autonomous Soviet Socialist Group, or they asked if they wanted to reestablish the already known Crimean Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic. That was the one we talked about first. It was uh, done away with in 1945. This proposal to become once again that prior to World War II, Crimean Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic was approved by 94% of voters. So uh, when we look at the vote breakdown, we have a 94.3%, yes. 1.3 million Crimeans voted yes, um, with an 81,000 uh, voting no, which is about a 6% uh, part of the, of the population. 
uh, they declared that 98% of all votes were valid and that 1.2% were invalid. So for a total vote of 1.443 million. So uh, the turnout was about 81%, 82%. So for all intents and purposes, in any other country or any other location, this would have been pretty legitimate vote to go off of. So we, all, we know <coughs> they wanted to establish the commission to carry out that referendum after it was voted for. Um, but the Ukrainian, the Ukrainian SSR right now uh, passed a law specifically preventing the Crimean uh, autonomy from being established. Um, in September of 1991, the Crimean parliament declared state sovereignty and obviously that wasn't recognized by the Ukrainian government. Um, there is a USSR law that they invoked and it says on the procedure for resolving issues related to the withdrawal of a union republic from USSR. This issue could only be resolved during via a referendum. But Ukraine said that since the USSR was no longer or on its way to no longer being in existence, that those laws uh, don't count anyway. So that kind of goes into a wash. But Crimeans are like, you know what? We voted for it. We're gonna we're going to act like we we're gonna be sovereign anyway. So they made a constitution after they declared uh, themselves an autonomous Soviet socialist republic. But obviously, uh, it didn't come to any fruition, and that was abandoned later that year. So then we come to the second Crimean referendum of the '90s, which is in 1994. That's the three-parter. That was in the spring of 1994. This was held as a separate vote uh, during elections. So people were coming to vote anyway. Um, and they were basically asking Ukrainians or asking Crimeans once again how what their feelings, what their feelings had changed since the dissolution of the USSR and now living under Ukraine. So the votes did change somewhat. We got 78%. There, well, there were three different um, questions. The first question was, are you for the restoration of the provision of the Constitution of the Republic of Crimea, which determines the regulation of mutual relations between the Republic of Crimea and Ukraine on the basis of a treaty of agreements? So this is for the restoration of Crimea as a separate republic. 78% voted yes. The next question was dual citizenship. Are you for the restoration of the provision of the Constitution of the Republic of Crimea of 6 May 1992 that proclaimed the right of citizens of the Republic of Crimea to dual citizenship, meaning dual citizenship between Russia and Ukraine? 80, 83% voted for. Then the last part. Are you for conceding the force of laws to the edicts of the President of the Republic of Crimea on questions that are temporary, not regulated by legislation of the Republic of Crimea, which is 78% voted for. I don't have more numbers on how many turned out or what the percentage of voter turnout was or boycott, but even so, those numbers are very high. Those numbers are landslide numbers. This is, we're talking about autonomy, dual citizenship, and a movement toward back toward Russia. Um, so the reason why I'm bringing this up is because a lot of people tell me that after 2014, Russia started importing Russians. 
the Crimea or maybe before that. Yes, yes. But, that but wild talking, theory. Yeah, I love that one because that's that's ethnic cleansing and somehow this major ethnic cleansing went unnoticed by everybody until now. Anyway, um, but well, because we look the same, so it's easy to miss. <laughs> Russians are sneaky, so we just, you know, we just sneakily, you know, throw them across, you know, across the bridge. Well, I've always wondered, I'm like, well, where'd they go? <laughs> we just throw they? them during the night, I'll tell you, you know, across the, across the bridge, little Russians are flying. We try, we try to do it when they're really small, and Russians, by the way, for all the listeners who haven't really encountered many Russians, we're, you know, we're not a tall nation. We're a pretty compact nation. <laughs> and so, so we try to pick those who are, you know, kind of kind of on the smaller side and we throw them across the bridge and it's done. That's that's how we did it. I mean, it got easier once we got the bridge, which is actually why Ukraine has been trying to hit the bridge to prevent this. <laughs> before we you're getting ahead you can't tell them about the full well, i'm sorry i'm just you know i'm just excited to tell all of our yeah, secrets secret. about how how we how we did this project but yeah, yeah. on the a secret. serious note that theory is is ridiculous the symbolic uh meanings of the kirch bridge now lydia's giving it all meaning yes it's, it's all to transport small russians into crimea <laughs> I'm just imagining like Russians throwing like little dwarf Russians across the Kerch Bridge. Exactly. Like, like go forth and multiply. But um exactly but the reason why I bring up the 90s is because that I really think that it's important to stress that even when Russia was in its worst, worst state in the last like century, the Crimeans still wanted would have rather been a part of a crumbling Russia. Crazy people. Yeah, this emerging new promising nation of Ukraine. And I'm wondering why that was. If so soon after Ukrainian independence was established, were the Crimeans ready to jump ship and say, oof, you know, we don't want any of that. What what did they see in the because that's a big step for any any um separatist movement or anybody that wants to challenge borders? That's a big step to, to create a referendum. So, so for Crimeans to make that sort of statement, I think is a very big statement. And to do that in the 90s, during a time when Russia was in an enormous economic downturn, shows how important it was to them to belong to Russia regardless. That's how I take it. Because it's literally like, <laughs> okay, you guys are like, you guys are in a smaller, probably much more easy to manage country that, that you guys don't know nothing about. So there's a lot of promise or you can go back to Russia, which is currently in probably one of its greatest depressions. And the Crimeans were still like, we, we'd rather go to Russia. <laughs> so I think that, yeah. and I, I wanted to bring up the nineties referendums because I, I think that there are a lot of, um, I don't want to say that they're legitimate, but there are a lot of very um, prevalent, challenges to the 2014 referendum. So let's even taking that out of the equation uh, before Russian propaganda was was really a thing and we had Soviet propaganda, <laughs> agitprop, Crimean still wanted to be part of Russia. So there, um, and, and I'm, I have failed to find a major movement in Crimea uh, with 
utilizing Russian propaganda to convince these people to come back to Russia. I feel like Russia was so was spread so thin in the 90s. They were closing down their embassies left and right. I don't feel like that there was their concern was we have to get a propaganda campaign going to make these Crimeans want to come back to Russia. It's that important right now. I mean, Russia closed down every single embassy in Africa because they couldn't afford it. So I'm supposed to believe that there's this big campaign to take back the Crimean Peninsula while most of the Russians are just trying to survive. I just don't buy it. So then let's fast forward. So we get to Orange Revolution, which which JM's really well versed in the Orange Revolution. So what 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 role did Crimea play in the Orange Revolution, if any? Uh, not much, but I can say this about why they wanted to go back to Russia, because um, if you look at Russia in the 1990s, you can uh, Lydia can probably tell us uh, this a lot better than either you or I can. It's just a really, really awful place that you wouldn't want to be in in any respect whatsoever. Uh, if you look at Ukraine in the same period, you would immediately want to flee to Russia as fast as you possibly can. By the way, um, on the subject of just quickly, well, actually, well, I'll save uh, the spoiler about the Russian 2021 census and the demographic results from there for the end about um, uh, all the uh, ethnic cleansing that's taking place and uh, the official proof that we have of it in Russia's own statistics services. So I'll save that for later, just, you know, a little bit later. Um, the main uh, Crimea, of course, was very much against the Orange Revolution, but where Crimea is actually a lot more relevant is not what they did during the Orange Revolution. It's what they did after the Orange Revolution. In the 2006 iteration of Operation Exercise Seabreeze. So Exercise Seabreeze, for those who don't know, was until 2021, and obviously in 2022 it didn't happen for obvious reasons, was an exercise between the NATO and the Ukrainian Navy where they were learning how to where Ukraine was getting capacity building and training and funding from NATO countries to integrate it more uh, readily with NATO. And they'd been doing this since the mid 1990s. In 2006, however, when the U.S. Marines contingent, which was supposed to take part in op exercise Seabreeze, landed at Sevastopol, they were stopped by an angry mob. And the mood was so poisonous, and it was just impossible for them to disembark, that the amphibious, so I, the part where the Marines get to practice um, an assault landing on a beach, part of Exercise Seabreeze was called off in 2006. Now, did this make NATO think, oh my goodness, our invasion of Iraq has provoked ill feeling among people and therefore ill feeling towards NATO because NATO is associated with the United States, and especially since they were showing hostility to American soldiers in this instance, did it make NATO think, hmm, well, there must be very powerful emotional attachments there that we have to respect or that we should at least do everything to assure that closer alignment with NATO will do nothing to tear us under. And people most certainly do not need to be afraid of us. We're the good guys after all. No, they doubled down on propaganda, of course, and combating Russian disinformation, albeit 
um, I think it was a bit spurious here to see the dark hand of the Kremlin behind this, because um, as people such as Pavel Gubarev complained bitterly, the Kremlin was very happy to arrange business favors for Ukrainian oligarchs in the hopes that they would um, align Ukraine more closely to Russia, but in doing grassroots engagement, eh, the Russian government was pretty bad about that. Hmm. Makes sense. I actually have a survey that I wanted to uh, use as well, because something that something that I that I usually enjoy doing is usually if I talk to people who have views that somehow Russia has been influencing the Crimeans and you know importing Russians to Crimea or whatever basically that they were not really Russians in Crimea before 2014 I like to use western sources and so there is actually a pretty interesting uh survey it's public opinion survey that was made by none other but the International Republican Institute that is actually sponsored by USAID. So, which tells you something. And it's a very, people, if, if you're interested, you can Google it, uh, but it's called Public Opinion Survey Residents of the Autonomous Republic of Crimea. And it was done back in in 2013 okay so we can guess that back in 2014 obviously the u.s and the famous victoria nuland was already baking the cookies and had her sights on crimea <laughs> and so they you know, it was it was in the works and so uh they were doing some research to i guess figure out what the mood was and there are a lot of interesting questions that were asked but one of the questions that is probably the most relevant to us in this case is this regardless of your passport what do you consider yourself and so the you know the options the answers that people gave were crimean ukrainian russian crimean tatar other and so can you guess what the most prevalent answer was? Russian. <laughs> Russian. It, it was 40%. 40, 40 it was, per, and, uh, 40% Russian. Nationality in terms of what you consider, what nation you belong to, or did they mean it more in an ethnic sense? I guess they just, they didn't specify. They just meant, you know, whatever. What do you consider yourself? Do yeah, you consider what do you yourself yeah, do you consider yourself Russian? Do you consider yourself Ukrainian? Do you right. consider yourself just Crimean? Whatever right. that means. I want to piggyback onto what Lydia's saying because they did this in the in Eastern Europe too when they were trying to organize the Slavs, and they basically everybody had to have an ethnicity declared in the in the Austria Hungarian Empire, and people could declare whatever they want. They were, it was basically because there was no way to tell. They were like, you know, put down your ethnicity on your on your piece of, on your identification, and there was no specification. Like JM asked, like, is this according to to language, religion, uh, parents? What is this according to? Where you were born? There was nothing like that. They just told them like, whatever you feel that you are, and and ethnicities defined differently by different people. So. I think it's important yes. to leave that open-ended as saying, like, what do you feel that you are? 
Yeah, I feel like that's kind of, you know, your first instinct. What, what are you? And so the, the breakdown is that 40% said that they were Russian. Then the second popu most popular answer was Crimean, actually, you know, not even Ukrainian. And then it was 15% for Ukrainian and 15% for Crimean Tatar. And then 5% uh, for other and then 1% for people who didn't know what to answer, I guess. So that already gives you a pretty good idea uh, of what people felt like before the, you know, the referendum. Well, I've got an even better one. It's the 2001 Ukrainian census. Ooh, we, we, have a, <laughs> we have a survey competition. Okay, let's hear it. Um, okay, so this lists the breakdown, and uh, it's going to be relevant, and I'm going to spoil the story by jumping ahead to the 2021 uh, Russian Federation census. So Autonomous Republic of Crimea, in terms of those who gave their nationality, 2,024,000 of whom Russians were 1,180,400, or 58.5% of the peninsula's population. Ukrainians, 492,200. Crimean Tatars, 243,400. So already right there, there are 1.18 million Russians and a population of just slightly over 2 million. I regret to inform our listeners that in between 2001 and 2021, the number of people in Crimea declined by about 100,000. So the total population of Crimea as surveyed by the 2021 Russian Federation census was 1,934,630. Of those, 1,777,415 declared their nationality. To determine the percentages of a particular ethnic group, we're going to go only by those who declared their nationality total. So there were 243,000 Crimean Tatars in 2001. And as we know from reliable patriotic Ukrainian sources, the Crimean Tatars have been ethnically cleansed and brutalized, yes? Mm-hmm. In 2021, there were 250,651 Crimean Tatars, or 14.1% of the population of the peninsula. There were, at the same time, however, 1,296,442 Russians, ethnic Russians, or just over 72% of the population of the peninsula. By contrast, where we see the biggest drop, and again, there is no scientific need for anybody in this survey to declare what they are and present it on the basis of it. It's you know a lot on the basis of what do you feel yourself to be. So there are people in this survey in terms of their ethnic group who declare themselves to be French, Estonian, or German. So that's just uh, for our listeners to know. The Ukrainians had dropped to 145,852. Now, given that there are 100,000 fewer people in the peninsula, this means one of two things. Either the Ukrainians are correct and ethnic cleansing was carried out, but they're absolutely wrong about which ethnic group was targeted and it was the Ukrainians, or much more likely – those Ukrainians who didn't like life 
in uh, Crimea because they were just such believers in the idea of a united Ukrainian people and the great nation of Ukraine, which had done nothing except make uh, the basket case that was Russia look good, uh, decided instead to leave Crimea and go to Ukraine to have a better European standard of living or whatever it was they were thinking or just as understandable likely, or just as likely a very large number of Ukrainians, i.e. people who previously declared themselves to be ethnic Ukrainians, felt so alienated from Ukraine that they decided in the ethnic survey to declare themselves to be Russians, not Ukrainians. Well, and if you look at it this way, I mean, can you blame them? Because I feel like something that a lot of people uh, don't talk about, I mean, we obviously talk about the referendum and the annexation, how they call it a lot, but not a lot of people talk about the blockade that was uh, that was targeting Crimea and how their energy was cu cut off because Ukraine was, you know, was under obligation to supply their energy but then, you know, they decided not to. And so can you really blame people, even if some of them change their minds? Because I feel like when, when Ukrainians, something that always strikes me as a Russian, uh, whenever I hear Ukrainians, um, generally, you know, Ukrainian leaders talk about Crimea, talk about Donbass, what do they talk about? Territory. <laughs> but they almost never talk about the people. It's almost as if people don't exist, their interests don't exist, uh, but they they actually do exist and they have their desires and they have their fears and and they obviously they, they want to go with the government that they feel cares for their needs. So let's talk let's let's really dig into what happened to Crimea during 2014 because I, this is where like mass confusion starts to set in right because Maidan's kind of happening it's it's still kind of going on it's in its wind down phases things are heating up in the east we have the Odessa massacre and I'm not going to sugarcoat that shit for anybody I'm willing to play devil's advocate for most things <laughs> but when it comes to the Odessa massacre we know that Ukrainian nationalists burned people alive inside of a building because they were ethnic Russians. Um, and we know that those people that participate in it are still in celebrate are still being celebrated today and they're on Twitter with huge followings. But that's neither here nor there. We'll get into that and maybe we'll do an episode just on the Odessa massacre because I feel like that's something that deserves its own own episode. But then we know that these far-right militants and uh Azov and or actually it wasn't Azov back then, it was still right sector. Azov hadn't really become a thing. This was still like kind of in its infancy. They start going over to Crimea and the Crimeans begin to panic, right? So yes. JM, what happens in 2014 with Crimea? They rushed to have a referendum, right? Well, and a bit more complicated than that. There were a few things going on in a few different places. First, the Maidan people, were exulting in their f victory, and since they like to talk a lot about agency, one thing that has become very clear to me from reading more pro-Maidan sources is that they certainly don't think that Russians in general or people who support Russia have any agency. They're mindless automatons who need to be wait for orders and told what to do. 
Um, at the same time, Putin, who had actually been mostly just enjoying the Sochi Olympics and not paying attention to what was a developing and horrible political crisis in Ukraine that was putting Yanukovych in extreme peril, um, suddenly found himself utterly wrong-footed when the deal that Yanukovych had signed with the political le party leaders of Maidan, though not really the true power on the square, and brokered by the European Union and the USA, for Yanukovych to in effect surrender his power and basically acknowledge that he was going to lose the next presidential election, that that was overturned by an armed coup d'etat on the night of 21 February morning of 22 February. And that very same day, the Ukrainians repealed Russian language protections. And the EU and the US, rather than saying, oh no, um, you must respect the political uh, agreement that you reached with President Yanukovych, uh, immediately celebrated the fact that he'd left and recognized the new coup government and mocked uh, Russian concerns. So it was also clear from this action that very much the West was not going to do anything to ensure that Russia's interests were protected. And as a matter of fact, they didn't care about that, and even any commitments that they made weren't worth very much. And given the fact that the renewal of the lease on the Crimean naval base to 2042 had generated such controversy for Yanukovych himself, now that he was gone and a bunch of nationalists were in question, they were going to almost certainly question and try and revoke the lease on the base, meaning that Russia was faced with the prospect of losing uh, the Crimean naval base within three years if they didn't act and act fast. So they needed to do something. It's quite clear that um, intelligence operatives from the SVR, the FSB, and the GRU fanned out over the peninsula to sound out um, if people would be opposed to the Russian military coming in and taking over, just outright taking over, in the Crimean Peninsula. But while this was also going on, people who had been protesting against the Maidan in Kiev, but who had actually been attacked beaten, abused, and even a few of them murdered just trying to get back to Crimea on the way there. This happened at a uh, at Korsun um, when they were trying to leave from Kiev. So they brought back with them these tales of what has just gone on in Kiev and what sort of people that they're dealing with who are now in power in Ukraine. And given everything that you've pointed out, Chebu, about how full of protest and uh, quite um, positive the emotions people had in Crimea largely about Russia and also their discomfort with being in Ukraine, uh, they certainly were not going to stand for this. So thousands of people came out into the streets demonstrating for either independence or to join Russia. Um, nobody, it seems, in Kiev or the West have expected Putin to have given orders for the Russian military to seize Crimea, but that is just what happened. But even before Russian soldiers began um, taking over key strategic points, the uh, aforementioned Russian intelligence operatives had approached people in the Ukrainian military and Ukrainian police, particularly people like who in the Berkut unit who had suffered a lot in Kiev, 
um, and even some Ukrainian soldiers and sailors to ask, um, would you be willing to uh, move to this location um, over these next few days and secure it uh, for something special, which we can't tell you about, which is going to happen? And they found a pretty large number of people willing to say, yeah, sure, I'm definitely up for that. I want to get some payback for what happened on the Maidan. So rather than it being this fraught uh, process with people protesting a foreign invasion, what caused people in the West and Ukraine to absolutely sputter with rage and incomprehension was not just that the Russians were able to bloodlessly take over Crimea, but that they were welcomed by the people of Crimea and even in many instances by Ukrainian soldiers on the peninsula, as in half of all Ukrainian military personnel on the peninsula outright defected to the Russians, as in um, they uh, marched out of their bases and signed up to be part of the new Russian armed forces, including at one time the head of the Ukrainian Navy. Let's talk about the Kerch Bridge. Um, it was built. It's this huge symbolic, obviously Lydia told us the dark side of the Kerch Bridge, but yes. it's, <laughs> it's a huge symbolic triumph for Russia after climbing out of the depths of despair of the 90s and the early aughts, and they built this incredible feat of engineering. Um, we talked a little bit about the geography of the of the Crimean Peninsula and why it's so difficult to get things in and out of there because you have that tiny isthmus or do you have to use water um, and so or obviously air and so this the Kerch Bridge made it so that was no longer a, there was no longer a bottleneck effect there was a, another vein if you will so yeah and so, so we can talk about the the Crimean bridge and and then we can kind of jump in how people feel about it now how it you know how it connects uh, Crimea to Russia but also like both literally but also symbolically which right, is well, I, why Ukraine hates it <laughs> <laughs> so we have this Kerch bridge it's huge it's beautiful and like Lydia just said um this is symbolic as well as literal triumph and a huge symbol of bridging this gap, if you will, pun intended, between Russia and the Crimean Peninsula over the Kerch Strait. So we all know now that because of this, this has been um, an enormous focal point for the Ukrainians, uh, the bridge, as well as the peninsula. But I also think it's important to note that Zelensky owns real estate on the peninsula, very, very nice real estate that he has not been able to use. And he also thinks that Crimea should be the new Silicon Valley. So this isn't all like altruistic or anything like that. This isn't about returning the ethnic Ukrainians back to Ukraine. It's once again about money. Um, we all, I think you guys already talked about how they don't even give Crimeans water when they have control of it. And now they just, it's really just about the resources and that prime peninsular real estate because Crimea is gorgeous. I mean, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So, it's a gorgeous place. Well, and, and also let's not forget that from Zelensky's point of view, uh, wouldn't it be such a great gift to the U.S. and NATO if they could give the naval base on the platter uh, to them? Right. And, and also because the West has always, always, always maintained the line that the 2014 was an invasion of Crimea and a force and the referendum isn't real. 
So um, I remember yesterday I told you guys, like, I'm going to try to be the devil's advocate. So I watched a bunch of uh, Ukraine leaning stuff um, from now and from then and, and stuff like that. And, and um, I did watch one where he was visiting uh, Crimea during the referendums and kind of looking around for people who were going to vote no and really couldn't find any, which I thought was really interesting. So we kind of got like a little bit of Western media that slipped through the cracks, but you could tell that he was there like really trying like he, and then he went to the Tatar uh, areas and was kind of asking them like, are you going to vote today? Like, what would you vote for? And they were kind of, they were like, we, the, our leaders have, have not given us our voter card, but that's not the answer that he wanted, <laughs> wanted to hear. He wanted to hear like, we're going to there, we're going to vote no. It's, we don't want to be part of Russia. And they were like, well, we would have voted, but they're not letting us vote. So the Tatars boycotted the vote anyways, not that they would have made a difference, but um, they weren't, they were, they were basically forced to boycott by their own uh, leaders. So they did not vote for the most part in the 2014 election. Um, was that, does that mean it was a sham? I don't know. I also read the Austrian, uh, Austrian observers report and I find Austria to be kind of balanced in a way I don't know I don't know why <laughs> but even he said like I didn't see anything that would have constituted this to be an unfair uh, referendum or an unfair vote so um the west has always been trying to fight that narrative set set forward by the actual firsthand experience and so yes it would be the ultimate gift if Zelensky was about was able to be like look all of your propaganda dreams have come true. Here's Crimea. Because Crimea is not a gift to Zelensky or to the Ukrainians. Like Lydia said, Crimea is a gift to the West. There's well, nothing to do I, with Ukraine. I do have a Gallup poll here from 2014 Ooh. about um, where they actually did survey people in Crimea about uh, what do you think about the referendum to join Russia? Um, please tell me if you agree or disagree. The results of the referendum on Crimea status likely reflect the views of most people there. In Crimea, 82.8% of the population agreed. That would seem to suggest that the uh, turnout and results were um, not entirely free or fair because they got 97% of the vote voting yes on a 85% turnout, as I recall. But it still would have been had it been, you know, completely above border, whatever. It still would have been very powerfully yes. Of those who agreed that it was legitimate, 68.4% of those Crimeans who were considered themselves ethnic Ukrainians who answered this Gallup poll said that. The referendum was legitimate and reflected the views of most people there. 93.6% of ethnic Russians did. So even among self-declared ethnic Ukrainians, a very large percentage thought that most people here want to join Russia. And that presumably means most ethnic Ukrainians. Well, I can tell you this because I feel like, you know, we're having this like survey battle. Like you get a poll, you get a poll. But I wanted to add some like let's call it anecdotal evidence. Uh, there is this Ukrainian website that's called Strana UA. Um, they have a YouTube channel, they have a Telegram channel. What they are is in Ukraine, they're actually considered uh, opposition media. Uh, but 
they are Ukrainian. And so on some issues, I would say they are neutral or more balanced. I'm talking as a Russian, um, but they're still Ukrainian. And so back in uh, 2016, so that was two years after the referendum, uh, one of the reporters uh, went to Sivastopol and basically talked to the people on the streets. And she asked them a very neutral question. Uh, she asked them, how has your life changed uh, in, in the past two years. And the reporter is obviously Ukrainian and <laughs> and she you can see in her face that she didn't like most of the answers because the the answers and people I felt were very balanced because it wasn't it it didn't look staged, you know, as some people could claim. Uh, people were saying that a lot of were saying that we we were always Russian, so we always wanted to be with Russia, and we were very happy. And they were also talking about some issues. They were saying how, well, and let's remember that was still back in 2016. They were talking how there were still some job issues. There were still, you know, some pricing issues and banking issues and things like that. But still, the replies that she got, they were overwhelmingly positive. And she would ask them questions like, well, would they want the Ukrainian government back? here and she also got overwhelmingly negative response and she also did an interesting experience which i, I enjoyed because um after she asked the the people questions in russian she said well maybe uh they're scared to to tell the truth because obviously they think that i'm russian and so she would ask them in ukrainian and she would get the same response and and i felt that it was very telling because Two years later, it still pretty much confirms what we could see back in 2013 and in 14 and in 16 and what we see now. That Crimea is essentially, whether people like it or not, it is overwhelmingly Russian. Well, and that happened again, actually. That happened again in 2022, I want to say. Uh, a CN Jay, maybe you can find it, but a CNN reporter, I can't remember his name. He's also on the, the Mir Tovets, uh list. And he's not allowed to enter Ukraine proper. I don't know why. I don't remember what happened. I did know why at one point. But he went out to Crimea for CNN with the intention to get back. <laughs> with the intention to get back into. I'm laughing because this is so funny. The intention to get back into Ukraine's good graces, right? He was going to go out to Crimea. He was going to do this big expose, middle of the war. I think this was back during the last Crimean bridge strike. Um, with the with the suicide bomber, the truck bomber, whatever it was, and uh, he's he wanted to like go there and do an be expose about how people were like ready for this war to end or turn to Ukraine, <laughs> and he couldn't find anybody to tell him that they wanted him to they wanted to return to Ukraine, so it didn't really Poor guy. work. <laughs> Still not allowed in Ukraine. <laughs> didn't go he wanted it to go. So he only got to interview, I mean, I'm sure he interviewed more, but only like, I'm guessing the more gentle ones made it into the, <laughs> the, the like video because the woman's like, no, no. Like she's like very, very vehemently like, absolutely not. There's no way I want to like go back to Ukraine. And they're like, well, what about the war? And they're, they're like, what, you know, how, you know how Slavs and Russians are. Well, whatever, whatever has to be done has to be done. You know, I mean, we just wait. And nobody would say, said that they wanted to, to return to Ukraine. And this was after almost a year of the conflict. So um, I think that's very telling. Um, 
And, yeah. and you did say something about them not taking uh, citizens or the people's feelings or their desires and just consideration. And I mean, they literally show you that when they bombed the bridge and two civilians died orphaning a child. And then they tell us like, <laughs> who cares? You shouldn't be on a bridge during a war. Um, it, I, I mean, it's kind of crazy. They, they don't well, they don't really care about anything. And taking back Crimea, once again, to reiterate, is not about taking back the people. It's about money and about the, the real estate and the resources. So, Exactly. And actually, I wanted to, uh, I was watching actually today this interview with um, Evgeny Murayev. He's, uh, again, uh, he's a Ukrainian uh, politician. He's opposition and uh, he's currently not in Ukraine, by the way, fun fact, uh, who would have thought, but uh, I was watching his interview uh, that was back seven years ago, but I felt that actually it just, it just really struck me because he was, he's very pro-Ukraine, but pro-Ukraine in a very healthy way. Um, and he was saying how the current government actually doesn't have a plan for taking Crimea, like what it means, what it means for the people. It, the government doesn't think about what it can do to make it attractive to the people. It only thinks about force. And, you know, it's it's this, this old, how we say in Russia, the cake and the whip strategy. Yep. And so I feel like <laughs> what Ukraine has uh, for Crimea is only the whip. And what yep. Russia has for Crimea is, is a cake. Because if you look at it, again, let me go back to my favorite Western survey, but they also asked them this question back in 2013. Uh, what issues uh, are the most important for them? And people cited unemployment and uh, control over price growth and industry and corruption, which I'm not going to say that Russia came there and made it all perfect, but definitely, and you can hear it in the interviews of the people, they overwhelmingly state that things have got better. And when they talk about Ukraine, they, they say that they never had any hope for things getting better. And that's something that a lot of people in the West, regardless of how they feel about the current conflict, need to keep in mind that uh, this, the Crimea, it's not just a uh, it's not just a piece of land, it's people first and foremost. And those people, they have lives, they have desires, they have dreams, they have things that they care about. And they have two governments. One of them wants to basically <laughs> take over their land and do, we, we've all heard what they plan to do there and do really crazy things there. And then you have another government that actually seems to care about them and cares to give them a better life. So is it really surprising what choice they they made and continue to make? Well, they already told them. Yeah, I mean, they've made up this lie that somehow Russia imported all of these ethnic Russians, which is amazing because now they've set themselves up to if in the very rare chance that they snowballs chance in hell, even if that they retake Crimea, they can now say we're going to ethnically cleanse this area of Russians because they were never really here anyway. The Russians brought them here. They're in their transplants. They're not Crimeans. They're getting which is out. so First, scary. That's so scary if you think about it. Like, like I said, regardless of whether you think Russia is in the right here or in the wrong, but just think about it. 
everyone think about how scary that is that thought that that they're willing to do this and i actually have no doubt that they would do this they're willing to do this to people and they they will they would no doubt justify whatever their plan was and that's terrifying I don't even think that that's the terrifying part because I'm I'm very desensitized to Ukraine being absolutely psychotic. Um, I think the terrifying part is that the West is going to uphold this narrative that Russians have been implanted into that peninsula and say, well, I mean, Ukraine's just just reversing what Russia did and Russia's our enemy. So we support Ukraine. That's the terrifying part, because we're talking about ethnic cleansing on a very large scale, millions and and that is ethnic cleansing if they don't whether or not they die or not is 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 obviously beside the point that's a form of ethnic cleansing making them move and we are they don't have to hide it they're going to be able to do this in broad daylight and the west and all of their supporters are going to say like go home ruski like you weren't supposed to be here anyway so it's not even it's that's even more terrifying it's not that these it's that these people if if ukraine takes that peninsula back these people know that they're going to be forcibly ex uh, forcibly um evicted from their homes but no one's going to be able to help them only russia and we would have to see i mean that, that's a whole nother rabbit hole but what russia could do in that instance but that's the terrifying part like the west upholds this weird um morality about humanitarian interventions right that's what they used as the excuse to go into yugoslavia but i mean this would be a humongous humanitarian catastrophe just like the dam but because it's happening to ethnic russians and because it's it's hurting theoretically hurting russia the west is going to uphold it so i think that's the more terrifying part is not only that ukraine uh, makes up these fanatical stories to justify either their past or, or future actions. But I think that it's scarier that the West is 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 willing to uphold these ridiculous rumors as fact, which that's the scarier part. And that's why I think that um, a lot of the people don't really dwell in a solid reality. I think that's why we get a lot of these weird things from Ukraine, Ukrainian government true yeah you put it very well uh, all of, all of it is terrifying because sometimes you know as a, as a russian obviously during the past year and a half i've i've dealt with my fair share of hate and i try not to dwell on those things but occasionally you know it's like 3 a.m and i can't sleep and i start thinking about this and you know other things of that nature and it is very scary so we've got two attacks on, on, on the bridge in this, two major attacks, let's say, two, six, two major successful attacks on the bridge. First one is well, relative. Let's, let's define success here. Okay, well, I mean, I'll fair. say successful that major repairs had to go underway. So, you know, like there was some sort of, uh, of uh, damage done to the bridge. That's, I guess that's, that's what I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm actually like, maybe I'm a Ukrainian today. I'm taking the small victories. I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it to Ukraine. They, they messed up the bridge for, for a good couple, couple weeks, right? They just kind of shut down a lane or so, right? Okay. That- I'll, 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 I'll just be a proud Russian and kind of, you know, dismiss it, but then, yeah, well, let's, let's give it to them. I'm just, right, you know, yeah. I'm, so they get, it's not just because I'm Russian. 
<laughs> they get this random guy. What JM, what is he like Georgian or Armenian or something? Who, and, me? No, what not you. <laughs> the guy that drives across. Who are you? What kind of a random guy are you? Tell us. I was asleep and woke, asleep and woke back up. So oh, this, it was it was um the uh man who was uh being sent as an unwitting suicide bomber by the SBU. <laughs> He was Missouri, yeah. and they did it because he'd had trouble with the Russian authorities before. But um, everything from the way he acted when he was actually uh, stopped, his truck was stopped for inspection by um, the FSB personnel guarding the bridge who performed random checks on, especially on heavy goods vehicles going across. There was nothing to indicate that he was at all nervous or didn't. Or thought that it was anything other than just a job, again, late at night with bad pay to take something across the bridge. So it's almost certain that he had no idea he was going to his death and was being used as an unwitting suicide bomber. Also terrifying. <laughs> like, that is absolutely terrifying. Terrifying. So the cartridge bridge blows up. We get a really good meme that includes Hasbulla. That's probably one of my favorite memes from the entire war. And um, maybe I'll post it on the Telegram with the link to this. I actually haven't seen that one. Okay, that's a good one. Um, so we have that. The Kurtz Bridge eventually gets repaired. Um, we kind of we kind of don't talk very much about Crimea for that interim period. And then we start talking about it again. They start bringing it back probably around like February, March. And that's when they're like, the counteroffensive doesn't stop until we get to Crimea. I need to stress this enough. I'm not a military on the ground strategist. I don't care. I think it's dumb stuff to fight over. But we've already talked about the geographical makeup of the peninsula. To get, for, for Ukraine to get to Crimea and be able to take it over, they need to have a what the Red Army had when the whites occupied that, that area. Adjusted for modernity, obviously which is never, it's not possible, right? So so we know they're trying to blow up the Kerch Bridge because that's the only way you're going to be able to take that, that, that peninsula. That's the only way. You have to blow up that bridge mm -hmm. and then you have to use the isthmus and you would have to use the water, which they can't use anyway. So this is obviously just a complete, complete pipe dream. So we have another attack on the Crimean Bridge. I'm of the, of the mind, given what I just said, that this is just PR and morale crap again. Well, I I actually would agree because I feel like if they let's let's imagine again as a proud Russian and also a person who dwells in the real world and not wherever Ukrainians <laughs> dwell, I think it's it's not going to happen. But let's imagine it does. Um, that would definitely be a huge thing for them, and that would definitely be a huge hit for the Russian morale, for sure. In, in on many levels. Well, yeah, but it, the impossibility of it. I mean, like, let's dwell in fact and pulling out emotions. There's an inherent impossibility that's not going to happen. And so the only thing that I can think of is gaining from this, uh, these little, these attacks or these bumps in the road or these hurdles that they throw at, at Russia in terms of the bridge is that they're sending a signal to the West, like, hey, we're still willing to do this, and we can we can reach out and touch them, but we can't take this without your help. You guys are gonna have to help. 
Hmm, could be. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't look at it this way, but I. I think. Yeah, I think you're onto something. Right, because if Crimea is the big prize, right? I mean, the way that well, I don't know so much now, but the way that they've talked in the past was like Donbass was a given. Like they're like Ukraine's taking back Donbass, like on the Ukrainian side. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's not even a question. We're going all the way to Mariupol, three days, no big deal. We'll get there, and so that was not not really seen as like the trophy. The trophy is Crimea, and and I think that realistically, we all know that the Ukrainians cannot take that on their own. But in the meantime, they can show their willingness to do it. <laughs> and the West might be like, all right, let's, what do we need to get this? What do we, what do we really need to get this done? I mean, I still think it's impossible given the grand scheme of things, but I think that Ukraine has to somehow keep the West's interest in it, interest in that, in, in Crimea. Probably. Jam, what do you think about this? About the prospect of Ukraine retaking Crimea? Um, <laughs> not very much. Oh, I, I, already, I already knew the answer before you answered. Just from the tone of voice. Um, <laughs> we know, uh, like, factually speaking, they can't. So well, I'm um, saying it, that it would hitting be, the bridge. Yeah, it would probably, well, hitting the bridge or not, I mean, as Brian Berletich has pointed out, Crimea was supplied before the bridge was up. And yes, it would be a blow to morale. But the reason, as I said before, that the West and Ukraine want to take down the bridge is it was something that the Russians were supposed to be too incompetent and too corrupt and too poor and just too bad things to be able to construct and yet they constructed it and it's great and oh boy does that get them mad um it's why general ben hodges is absolutely ass mad and constantly saying that (laughs) ukraine is going to take crimea this summer well general you have two months left before summer is up and by the way um given uh, what's happening around orechovo just even today to say nothing of what's happened before i don't think that is going to happen currently because it's quite a big news day when we're casting ukraine is trying to have another major attack to try and break through to cut the land bridge which would put crimea in danger so far there is no danger of that this is their western trained army this is in fact the third iteration of the vsu since february 2022 that is now getting destroyed and dismantled by the russian army this is with its top nato equipment and top nato training and when it's gone well, NATO's going to need at least six months to stand up another such army, if not nine months, and uh, Russia's not going to be passive during that time, so I don't think it's time that they have. But it's okay. Ukraine can go on with its fantasies about ethnically cleansing the native population of the peninsula, and they can have nice fantasies about transplanting a bunch of Ukrainians from a severely underpopulated country, (laughs) even more so than in Russia, to uh, complete the Ukrainianization of lands that were variously Greek, Scythian, Turkish, or Russian, but never ever ever ukrainian but then again ukrainians do like to change facts on the ground and insist on things being ancient indeed being the most ancient europeans ever 
the founders of European civilization. No, I'm not making that up. That's what they actually think. But anyway, that's what they like to do. Are they actually good at carrying it out? Well, we'll see. But I think that in the meantime, as ever, the Russian army and the Russian navy will have something to say about it first. And I think they're giving their opinion on this matter very loudly, very clearly. Right now, <laughs> as we speak, actually. So I think we can all come to a conclusion and an agreement that the changing of hands for Crimea is not going to happen anytime soon, most likely nope. not, even, not even in our lifetime. The end. No, I'm just kidding. But yes, I think we can all agree that Crimea will stay with Russia for the foreseeable future. Yes, and we like it this way in Russia. Um, Lydia and I have to get back to throwing midgets across the now damaged Kerch Bridge, which has just made our job even more difficult. Yes, unfortunately, it's you know it's a long way to throw them. <laughs> JM sounds like he's sick of us already, so we're gonna let JM get let get JM get off of this horrible podcast where we've just tortured him for over an hour and a half. JM, no, it's been lovely. <laughs> No, it's all right. Well, thanks everyone for joining us again for another episode of the DD Geopolitics podcast. Guys, why do I keep messing this up? Someone else take us out. <laughs> Someone else do it, please. You've been listening to another episode of the DD Geopolitics podcast. Thank you for listening in, and we hope to see you all shortly. Bye for now.